Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Good. Beautiful weekend. You guys ready to be hot outside? Yeah? Good, good. Well, good morning. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Kyle. Um, I am a pastoral resident here at uh, Redemption Hill. I teach Bible for high school students at a local school, so that means I'm a professional Bible nerd. Um, Heather and I have a ministry we do out of our house at our kitchen table for young adults. And what all of this really means is that we don't really sleep. Um, I'm happy to be with you guys today. Um, before we get going, let's pray. Father, as we take time to uh, wrestle with your word, I just pray that uh, you will transform our hearts, you will work in us, you will help us see your truth, and that... Uh, as much as I put my heart into putting some thoughts together, we don't want any of it if it's not from you. So please, uh, please speak through this today. And, and uh, Jesus, we love you. Amen. Okay, so we've been going, uh, we've begun this series on 1 John. 1 John is a, a sort of a letter uh, written by John, um, written somewhere probably in the 80s or 90s AD. Uh, he is kind of shepherding a collective of micro churches. Might sound slightly familiar to us. Um, and there's some struggles going on in these micro churches. Now, he may have intended for this letter to go further on besides the micro churches. It's a little unclear. But either way, he's working in the context of the struggles these churches are working through. What's interesting about the way that 1 John is set up is that normally when you have a letter, you would set it up so that you have point A and then point B and point C and so forth, like in a, in a linear fashion, right? But John doesn't follow that in this letter. Um, if I could have the, the first slide, Kim, that'd be great. Um, this is kind of how he sets it up. For those of you that are science nerds, you might have gotten excited to see an atom up there. But I'm using it in a different way. The way that John writes this letter is he's got a couple main categories that he's working with. Um, I think that the three categories are life, truth, and love. And he kind of sees them as overlapping. So as he goes through this letter, he'll talk about love for a moment. And then he'll talk about truth. And then he'll come back and talk about love and build on it more. And then he'll talk about life. And then we'll jump up the truth. He kind of jumps all around between those couple of points. So as we go through this series, you're going to start hearing some repeated ideas from people as he keeps jumping back and forth, touching on those same couple ideas. In his mind, they're all the same conversation as they continue to build up. 
okay? So in order for me to talk about what I need to talk about today, I kind of need to go back and touch on what both Bob and Jesse amazingly covered over the last two weeks. Um, so to start off, he starts the letter with, um, may I have the first one? There we go. That which was from the beginning. That word beginning is going to be important. It's going to come up again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. That word fellowship is really important as we go on this journey in this letter. Fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. So, so keep, keep track of those. The fellowship with us and the fellowship with the Father. And then he continues on. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Well, light and darkness, those are abstract ideas. We have to kind of see how he builds on those. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And all of this is enabled by the blood of Jesus, his son, who purifies us from all sin. All right? Now if we continue on, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of Jesus Christ is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If all of this is based off of the truth of Jesus Christ, without recognizing that we are sinners, the truth of Jesus Christ means nothing. Okay, that's, that's a solid foundation for where, what we're building on here. Chapter 2, he says, he starts it off with, my dear children. Note the affectionate, the pastoral, the familial language there, my dear children. Um, for those of you that have children, think about the way that you love your children. If you don't have children, think about the way that you would love your children, right? This is very deep love that he's, he's communicating here. My dear children, I write this to you. Why? So that you will not sin. Um, another way to word what he's saying there is, I write this to you so that you can avoid sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That if there, but if, could also be uh, read as a win. It's an expectation. You're going to sin. Remember, if you don't sin, you're a liar. When anybody does sin, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. We have an advocate. 
advocate, that word there under it is, is paraclete. It's kind of a legal term. It means that we have a, a mediator, an intercessor who stands in on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Atoning sacrifice, that's a really big atonement. That's a big Christian idea that we have, right? Um, and Jesse covered it so well, I, I, I'm not going to cover it right now. But just to remind you, or if you weren't here, the idea of atoning, there's a bunch of different uh, ways that the Bible discusses atonement. In 1 John, he actually covers all of the main different ways, all in one short letter. Um, but atoning, this is a really way, easy way to look at atonement. Okay. We push God away, right? And so when we push God away, we create a chasm between us and God. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so we've got this chasm. So now we're separated. God's not okay with that. So Jesus Christ lays down as a bridge over that chasm that allows us to come back to God, right? God fights to make a way for us to come back to him even though we've pushed him away. The word atone, A-T-O-N-E, okay, an easy way to remember it is atonement is the activity that allows us to be at one with God again. Does that make sense? Atonement is the activity that allows us to be at one with God. That's the kind of love that he has for us. We push him away, but yet he pursues us. If we look at the, the parable of the, the prodigal son, I hate that title for that, that parable, but you guys know what I'm talking about. You have the son who barely turns to move towards the father, and what does the father do? He runs to the son. He covers the ground instead of the son, right? That's atonement. That's what God has done for us. And it's interesting because it says that um, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I love Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. That's great that he's, he's done these things for me. But it says he didn't just do that for me. He did it for the whole world. A little interesting um, side piece here for the whole world there. John Calvin, if you know who John Calvin is, he's one of the great thinkers from the Reformation. From John Calvin, we get Calvinist theology, a Reformed theology. Although modern-day Reformed theology probably still wouldn't have taken Calvin. He wouldn't have been Calvinist enough. But either way, we'll run with it. One of the main ideas for Calvinism is this idea of election. God has already pre-selected those who are going to be saved and the rest. Sorry, guys, you didn't draw the right number, I guess. Okay, that's a part of Reformed theology. So when John Calvin looked at this verse, he really struggled with it, and he tried to rethink it. And he decided that it meant not the whole world, but the church throughout the whole world. He didn't die for the whole world. He just died for our sins and the church throughout the whole world. But that's not what it says. It's pretty clear. Whether you want to read it in English or in Greek, it doesn't change. He died for the whole world. The word world, when it shows up, up often in scripture, tends to stand in the place of those who are opposed to God or in rebellion against God. So when we look at atonement, he didn't just die for those who are for him. He died for those who are also against him. Who does that? Who does that? So um, if we want to look at the concept of love, uh, Kim, may I have the next one? 
This is how the world sees love, right? We get these nice little pastel hearts. This is all cutesy. We have love. We have our romance movies. And I, I have to stress my manliness. I like a good romance movie as well, um, right? Uh, so in a romance movie, it's so cute, right? Or I'm a high school teacher. You see this good kid, and they start developing this crush on this other good kid. And it's kind of cute to watch it for a minute, although it's kind of unfortunate because most likely it's going to end up in a big crash, right? But it's cute at first when you see the sparks flying. This is how the world sees love. How does Jesus see love? If I could have the next one, Kim. This is how Jesus sees love. Love is not weak. Love is not soft. I don't know of anything more powerful than love. Um, and we, we see the pictures of the cross. It almost looks like he's way up on a telephone pole or something, right? He's, the crosses are so tall. But actually, on a cross, the feet of the person being crucified would only be a couple feet off the ground. They want them to be low enough so after all the brutal torture that you've experienced and then they nail you up there naked. Yes, you are naked up there. They want to make sure they've demeaned you as much as possible. They want you low enough so that all those people that are walking by mocking Jesus can shout right at him. As you're dying, as you're taking your last breaths, they can get right up to you and spit at you. What did Jesus experience? What did Jesus do while he's doing this? Well, he's choosing to place himself on a cross for the whole world. The very people that are placing him on the cross, uh, if you don't know this, when you die on the cross, it's actually not from all of the brutality. It's, you drown from the fluid in your lungs because you can't clear it out because of the way you're positioned. They want it to draw out as long as they can. And so you drown in the fluid in your lungs. What does he do with his last breaths? He literally prays for the people who are killing him. I don't know if somebody was brutally killing me that my last thoughts are going to be, you know what, I only have a couple breaths left. Let's pray for them, right? Who does that? Jesus does that. That is, that is love. That's how Jesus sees love, okay? So now that I've revisited uh, Bob and Jesse's message, now it's time for mine. All right. So if we get to uh, verse 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Uh, some modern Protestants, we don't like this whole obedience thing. Right? That's for someone else. It's not for us. Is this salvation by works? What is this? We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we just say, you know what, I follow Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean we put a nice cheesy little sticker on our bumper. Um, nice little Redemption Hill stuck sticker on the, the back window of our car or something. That, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Um, being a Christian, we don't get to check that box just because we wear our fun little camp shirts, right? And they're awesome. Great. All these things are fine. They're all good things. We know that we have come to know him. And note that it's possible to know him. That's a beautiful thing. It's possible to know him. We know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth 
We keep coming back to that word truth. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. You'll see that as the letter develops that that's what he's talking about there. The truth of Jesus Christ is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's the key thought. That's where the whole commands thing comes in. If we say that we are followers of Christ, if we truly have embraced the idea of who Jesus is, if we understand who Jesus is and we've truly fallen in love with him, we're going to be compelled to want to be like him. That's how we know that we're in him is because we start to look like him. I haven't gotten very far. He has much better hair than me. I still am holding out hopes. Um, but that's what it looks like to follow Christ. We start to look like him. What did Jesus look like? Well, we saw the cross. But something most Christians forget is that the story of Jesus is just he's a cute little baby and then he dies on the cross. We've got four gospels that document a whole lot about what his life looked like. Four documents that tell us the things he said, the things he taught, his expectations, his, his idea of how to approach the world. We just have to crack open our Bible. It's right there. As it said in verse 3, we can know him. He's made it all there available for us. We can know him. Do we want to know him? Do we feel compelled to want to know him? Um, are you going through and reading your Gospels and actually looking at the things he does and says and saying, you know what? That's the person I want to be. That's what I want to reflect. Um, every fall semester, I teach uh, Life of Christ to the sophomores. Every sophomore at our school has got to pass through my class. Lord help them. Um, and we te I teach Life of Christ. And this is a Christian school that I'm at. So kids who at least at some point in time, their parents signed a document claiming they're all Christians. It's crazy as we go through life of Christ, how much about Jesus they're blown away by. I've literally had students write reviews of my class saying that I'm controversial. But the funny thing is, I require them to have their Bibles open. We're teaching straight from the Bible. Is it me that's controversial or Jesus? Maybe both. I don't know. But... Jesus is controversial. That's why they killed him. But most Christians don't realize how different he is from the world. Whoever claims to live in him, I'm sorry, yes, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If we think of it as a tree, he is the trunk, we are the branches, we cannot produce good fruit if we're not connected to him. We should look like him. And by the way, the whole idea of keeping his commands, this isn't the first time it pops up. Um, Kim, may I have the next one, please? Maybe you've heard of this one. It's the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple going to look like? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. That's our call. Obedience is a part of it. Why? Because what are we obeying? We're learning how to walk like Jesus. That's the whole idea. So what does it look like for us to walk like Jesus? All right. So John continues here. Verse 7. 
Dear friends, um, where it says friends there in this NIV translation, in the Greek it's actually more clearly beloved, which applies much better to this text. We just don't typically walk around calling people beloved. Um, some of you might be, think it was weird if I walked up to you and say, hey beloved, how are you doing? So when they do it in English, they make it friends, but with how much love is the central piece in this text, beloved actually makes more sense. Dear beloved, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. There's that beginning again. We need to figure out what beginning is. Okay. This old command is the message you've heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Sometimes I would love to sit down with these uh, biblical writers and be like, can you just say this again in English because somehow this is confusing. I'm giving you an old command. It's a new command. It's a new command. It's an old command. Here's what we've got here. When he says the beginning, he's, he's, he's referring to the beginning of the story, the Torah, the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, if you don't know, that's a, the Bible nerd way of saying the first five scrolls of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's basically your introductory paragraph to the Bible. Okay? Um, you really, to truly understand scripture, need to actually know what's in those five books. Okay? Um, so in the beginning, there's some really important thoughts that pop up. One of them is Leviticus 19.18 that says... Love your neighbor as yourself. Wait, I thought Jesus said that. He did. He was quoting from Leviticus. Um, remember, the only scriptures that Jesus had was the Old Testament. Hey, it must be important. So we have that. Um, you've also heard the idea that we're supposed to love God, right? Love God and love others. The love God part comes from uh, Deuteronomy. Okay? Um, the, the old command that he's making new in this moment is Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is he trying to say here with the old command and the new command? Um, cheesy example. When I was 13 years old, a couple decades ago, quite a few. Um, so we're talking, oh, let's see here, late 1980s. Um, there was this, this band, Living Color, and they released this album, Vivid, um, it, had this big song, Cult of Personality, on it that I loved. I loved this album so much. In the beginnings of my rock and roll journey, this was one of the records that I just played to death. But I probably haven't listened to it in more than 20 years, despite the fact that I played it over and over again. And I'm not telling you to go out and listen to it because you're going to love it, because you probably won't. I was 13 at the time when I fell in love with it. I don't know if you would or not. But I heard somebody mention it the other day, and I put it on to listen to it, and I was like, oh, I love this. And I probably loved it because of the sentimental value of it. But either way, it was something that was old, and it became new for me again. Does that make sense? He's saying, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old command. It's been there since the beginning, but make it new again. Don't forget it. It's important. Okay? So I'm writing you this new command and it's a truth that is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The darkness is fading because those who have pledged allegiance to Jesus are bringing the light, or at least we're supposed to be bringing the light. Okay? Um, now, he doesn't tell us Leviticus 19.18 here yet. You have to go further in, so that's a spoiler. I messed up somebody else's message for you now. So since I don't want to mess up somebody's message too much, 
we'll go to a different document that he wrote, John 13. Okay, John 13 says, this is Jesus speaking, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. What does love look like? It looks like the love that Jesus gave, right? Not like the love of the world. The light is the love that Jesus gave. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I have a question for you. Is this what we're known for as a church? I'm not even just talking about Redemption Hill. So first of all, let's start with a big picture. Some about American Christians. Is this what we're known for? The way we love each other? The way that we love? Is love the definition of Christianity in America? Hmm. We must be struggling a little. Okay. Now let's bring it down to our local family here, Redemption Hill. Are we known for our love? I can honestly say I think we are, for those of us that know us. I think we do a pretty good job of this overall. Maybe I'm biased. I'm on the inside at this point. I can say that the moment I stepped into the church as a visitor, I saw uh, a community that was full of love, and that's what made me want to keep coming, despite the fact that you guys are on the far side of town from me. Um, so I think we do okay. I wonder how we could get better, though. I wonder how we could grow. And as I was reading through this text and working on it, a question that kept popping up for me was even much more personal. Am I known for the way that I love? Are you known? Do people, when they, when they think of you, the first thing they think of is, wow, they are just such a loving person. If we can't say yes to that, this whole thing that John's been saying is that we should really be asking him about that. Um, I'm not going to do it, but I was tempted to make us go through 1 Corinthians 13, and instead of saying love, put our name in there. You know, love is patient, love is kind, all of that. Kyle is patient. I don't know. Kyle is kind. Maybe that's something for you to work on this week, is go through that. And whichever ones are hardest for you to say, maybe those are places where you need to invite God to help you, right? This is what we're supposed to be known for, is, is not love like the world, but love like Jesus. Is that what we're known for? Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, brother or sister, in this context, he's going to be talking about fellow believers. Do we love all fellow believers? I mean, I don't think there's anybody in here that I'm uh, thinking ill of today. Maybe yesterday, not today. Just kidding. I, I, I think overall as a community, we do okay with this. But then I started thinking as I wrestled with it, how would you feel if I started um, talking about a different denomination? Would you start getting any ill thoughts about a different denomination? Um, at the school where I work, you mentioned the word Catholic, and oh my goodness, somebody's going to get struck by lightning. Um, they love Jesus. Um, 
So we could go down that list. Those are all still technically brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Um, any, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Uh, literally, this could read as, and there is no stumbling block in this. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. All of this comes down to some interesting ideas for me. He's not spending a ton of time dealing with sin and goodness. He's been dealing with sin and love. Made me kind of wrestle with, is he saying that love is the opposite of sin? It's an interesting thing to think about. When he talked about sin, he said that, um, look, you're going to sin. If you say you're not going to sin, you're a liar. But if you do sin, God's got you covered if you confess your sins. But the big thing is, go in love. Focus on going and loving. And I started wrestling with that more and I started thinking about it. Going back to the old, when we look at the, the law, the law starts with the uh, Ten Commandments, right? You guys, hopefully you know your Ten Commandments. If you don't, I don't know. In certain states, they're making the law to post them in school again. Um, okay, so you've got your Ten Commandments. And the first couple commandments generally focus on how to love God and the rest generally focus on how to love others. But the truth is they're all interconnected. So for example... Don't steal. If I steal from somebody, I don't love them, right? That's not loving. But if I know God, I also don't need to steal because I know that he's a generous, loving God who gives to me what I need, right? So if I love God and I know who he is, then I can trust in his generosity. And not only can I trust in his generosity so that I don't steal, I can trust in his generosity so that I can bless instead. The idea of Obeying and loving are interconnected. Um, and as you look at all the Old Testament laws, I don't have time to get into it all right now, and the Old Testament laws are all basically just case examples in their culture for how to follow the Ten Commandments. They're all just telling you how to love God and how to love others in their context. Now, obviously, you're not going to apply them directly to you. It's, it's, you have to look at them through the lens of Jesus. That's my biblical interpretation class if you want to take that one in the fall. Um, but... Um, that's what the laws of the Old Testament are about, is love. That's it. And that's part of what Israel seems to miss a lot of times in the Old Testament, is they forget the love part. That's what it's always been about, is how to reflect God and his love into our context. Therefore, the following of the laws was not about checking a box of rules. It was about how to love. The opposite of sin is love. Are we known by our love? You're not going to be perfect as far as being sinless, but are we known by our love? Um, let's see. I think my next one takes me to uh, Matthew 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going through. He's talking to his disciples and he's saying, so you know those laws? most of which you guys have gotten all messed up and confused, let's go back and revisit them. Let me help you understand the way that I see them. Okay? 
So this is after, by the way, he tells them to be the light. Going back to that concept of the light. He says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which, of course, I'm sure he's laughing when he says that because it never says hate your enemy. That's what us as people in the world like to insert in there, right? You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. You're whatever denomination I don't like. You're whatever people that look different or talk different or think differently than me. I can hate you, right? He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anybody here praying for those who have persecuted you? Jesus did. We already talked about it. Reluctantly. On the cross. What? Reluctantly. <laughs> Reluctantly. Um, Jesus did it while he's on the cross. He prays for those who are killing him. He's not just saying something crazy. He's saying, watch me, I'm going to do it. And this is what I want you to do. He's not just throwing something out there crazy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Anybody want to be children of God? This is what it looks like. And then he goes off on this thing that's really interesting. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. My neighbor, who I don't really like very much, they're kind of weird, and, you know, I won't even get into it. You know what? When it rains in Meridian, it rains on them just the same as it rains on me. God gives to both of us, right? Hey, it's kind of like that whole atonement thing we talked about. It's for the world. That's how God loves. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Maybe you don't personally have an issue with tax collectors, but I'm sure you can fill in the blank there with whatever it is that's on your mind. Maybe it's the guy at front that won't stop talking. I don't know. Whatever it is, whoever it is that you want to judge, they do that. Is that where you're putting yourself or are you better than that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Again, you can fill in the blank with whatever you want to put in there. He's saying the people you judge, the people that you look down on, they do that. Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to do something more? Because your father in heaven does something more. And then he says this crazy phrase. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a verse I've seen lots of people get tripped up on. How do I be perfect? I'm perfect, so let me tell you. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, so the perfect there is not saying be perfect as in don't ever sin. That's not what it means. Read it in context. We've all passed high school, or at least some of us have. Most of you have, I hope. Okay, you can read in context. What's the context? It's how to love like God. It has nothing to do with checking boxes of rules. The perfection is how to love as God perfectly loves. Do you see that in the text? This is our call. To not love like the world, but to love like God. To love not only those that we like, not only those that are attractive, not only those that seem real smart. I haven't popped up on this list yet. Um, to love everyone even the people that drive us nuts. To love everyone, even the people who persecute us. That's the call. That's what John's talking about. Now, 
I'll be honest, in context of his letter, he is dealing with inter- internal strife within their little microchurches. Love your brothers and sisters. But there's a reason that he's focusing on that. If you can't love within your family, how can you love outside? You know, in, in the letters to Timothy, he talks about how an elder needs to be able to take care of their family before they can, if they can't take care of their family, how are they going to shepherd in the church? It's the same idea. Are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ like God loves? And if you think we are, well, now we need to start looking outside the church. Are we loving others the way that Christ does? Would you be willing to love them with the cross? That's a heavy one. No one said it was going to be easy. Um, I had a couple other things I was going to say, but I'm going to switch gears here and just uh, improvise for a moment. I want to share something personal about love. So, I grew up in a home that was, uh, both of my parents were really abusive. I'm sure that many people have stories. I'm not trying to be better or worse, whatever. That's not the point. Just for me, my story, my parents are both very abusive, very broken people. Um, I'm not saying they never did anything right, but most of the time their, their actions were hurtful and, and selfish. Um, and by the time I became a teenager, I did not think that there was anybody who cared whether I existed. Now, I sort of had a couple of friends at school, but I knew that if I disappeared tomorrow, they wouldn't miss me. And I did not think my family really cared one bit at all. I was there when it was beneficial for them. I did not actually believe that anybody loved me. And that was lonely. Um, I was filled with anger. Uh, I, I went down a really poor path. Um, when life doesn't really matter, your choices don't matter so much anymore. Um, when I was about 16, I showed up at a, a youth group. Now, this is how it happens. I was hanging out with uh, this guy, and we were bored. We couldn't think of something to do. And he said, well, you know what? I know there's this church up the street, and they do stuff on Wednesday night. And we came up with this idea that we would go down there and hit on the Christian girls and see what happened out of it. It might be funny or, you know, maybe pick on some of the nerdy Christian boys, whatever. But we'll just go there and make some trouble. And so we go. Um, I remember uh, during worship, um, we, we carried knives, not because we thought that we were going to be carving wood or anything, but with our knives, we were carving things into the chairs it's kind of funny, he found the chairs a few years later. Kind of funny to come across that. But we were there, and there was this message about Jesus. And I don't exactly remember what was said, but in the message, the person talked about Jesus in a way I'd never heard before. And it was interesting. It was like, I'll keep coming back. And so I kept coming back. But it wasn't really like a big life-changing experience but the youth pastor, um, he was a young guy. He's about 26. Uh, had only been married for a short time. They didn't have kids. So he had a lot of time on his hands. And he started inviting me to go have a burger with him. Hey, I'm going to go run an errand over to Pleasanton, the next town over. Do you want to ride with me? And we didn't talk about deep stuff. He just gave me a little bit of his time. 
And he listened to me. And it was the first time I ever felt seen. It was the first time I ever really experienced what I would call love. This guy who just took time for me. And I didn't give my life to Christ right away or anything like that. But that moment literally changed my life, that, that time period. To this day, when I think of the concept of what does it be to mean to be a man, I think of Pastor Mike. What does it look like to be a dad? I think of Pastor Mike. When he had kids, uh, his babies were some of the first babies I ever held. Um, I don't think he understands the impact he had on my life. But all he did was take a little bit of time out of his life to make me be seen, to make me think that somebody cared about me and valued me. And he didn't go off on, you know, smacking me over the head with the Bible because let me assure you there were so many things he should have been doing that for. But he didn't. He just listened and cared about me, genuinely. Love is not a weak thing. It's a powerful thing. It's life-changing. His spare moments that he had changed my life. You see me now, I'm 46, overweight dad, whatever, nerdy guy. That's not who I was when I was a teenager. I was broken, hurting, angry, um, hurtful. Him just taking a moment to see me changed my life. Let me challenge you to ask yourself, uh, when you leave here today, don't jump in the car and turn on the radio and try to figure out what you're going to go do next. Ask yourself what you can do to love like Jesus. Genuinely. Like seriously ask yourself, what do I know about Jesus? And what would it look like to love like him? What's one thing I can do that would reflect what Jesus did? Note, by the way, Jesus spent a lot of time sitting down with sinners. He didn't get in their face and grill them, smack them over the head with the Bible either. That's part of why a lot of the religious leaders hated him. He'd just sit down and see them and love them. It's my challenge to you guys. Who knows? Maybe not even realizing it, maybe by accident you might save a life. Uh, worship team, if you want to come on up, you can. Father, you are amazing. You are beautiful. You are love. Love is not you, but you are love. Everything you do comes out of your love for creation. When you redeem, it's out of your love. When you judge, it's out of your love. Everything you do is out of love. And the way you love, it's available to everyone because you love us all. Despite ourselves, you just see us and we're just beautiful to you. That's an amazing mystery I don't think I can fully fathom. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to love more like you, to be more like you, to reflect you. Thank you for inviting us, Lord, into your fellowship. And thank you for empowering us to be able to be in fellowship with other people in love. Amen.
Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.